I'm joined today with Dr. Edmund Maza. He's been on the podcast before, and as you know, he is an advocate that Benedict is Pope, or may rest in peace, was Pope, and uh, we're currently in a crisis uh, with Pope Francis, and I wanted to have him on because, as you know, Pope Benedict XVI, may he rest in peace, passed away on December 31st, Feast of St. Sylvester, and... Um, I wanted to check in and and get your take on this. And there's been a lot of controversy in Catholic circles and all that. So, Dr. Ed Mazza, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. All right. Well, we're we're coming up not just you know in the wake of of the 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 death of Pope Ben the Sixteenth, but another important anniversary. And what is that? Well, today is the 10th anniversary of the day that Pope Benedict came out and shocked the world with his declaratio, his an annou announcement of his renunciation. Uh, and of course, that night, a couple of kilometer long lightning bolts hit the dome of St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, so that uh, that's and, and also it was the feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. Uh, and uh, so I want to acknowledge that today. Uh, especially because years ago, my wife and I went to Lourdes and we believe that she was miraculously cured of late stage cancer. So I'm very grateful to St. Bernadette and to uh, Our Lady of Lourdes. Beautiful, beautiful. So for everyone watching, you believe that in 2013, when Pope Benedict issued his declaration and the world saw him resign the papacy, you believe there's a defect in that resignation in the Latin regarding the Munis and Ministerium, and that means that the conclave that elected Pope Francis in 2013 was invalid, and therefore Pope Francis was an anti-pope. Do I have that right? That's, that's correct, because Canon 188 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law, which we operate under, says that any resignation that is made out of substantial error is invalid on its face by the, by the law itself. Okay, so where does that put everyone that holds your position after December 31st? I know that some people online have said, oh, y'all are all set of a contest, et cetera. <laughs> where are you, Dr. Maza? Well, you know, you had an interesting question yourself. You, you did a tweet uh, where you asked, uh, is, is Pope Benedict the real Pope? And uh, I think only 46% said yes, right? Yep. Um, but then you also importantly asked the question, why do people get irrationally angry uh, at that question? Uh, and I, because there are people who get irrationally angry. Uh, they call people like myself, uh, Benny Vicantists or Sede Vicantists or Schismatic. Uh, for example, the next day after Pope Benedict died, uh, Matt Frad uh, from Pints with Aquinas put out a tweet and he says, quote, uh, make no bloody mistake about it. It is active schism and therefore a grave sin for a Catholic to deny the papacy of Pope Francis. Shame on any Catholic who legitimizes this position, saying that it is within the realm of orthodoxy. Uh, well, Matt, why did you hold back? Tell us what you really think. <laughs> I can I could do the Australian accent, but I don't want to be mocking. Sure, in a sure. Charitable so, way. so as you know, I'm I've I've 
just talked to and had these discussions with Sede Contis, those that hold the Benedict or the Pope. Um, I, I still hold the classical recognize and resist position, but I'm open to hearing these different perspectives because I do believe that we're living under an ecclesiastical crisis like the church has never seen before. So my default position is let's be charitable. It's confusing. And kind of in the back of my mind always is St. Vincent Ferrer, who was a Dominican theologian, a preacher, who for a lengthy bit of time followed and submitted and celebrated his masses in communion with what the church now declares as an antipope. And yet St. Vincent was raising the dead and converting souls and, and all manner of, of miracles. Perhaps, I don't know, after the apostles, if there's been a saint who worked so many miracles as St. Vincent, and yet oddly enough, during this time of crisis, he, for a period, was in communion with an antipope. So I, I don't take the position, maybe I misunderstand Fran's position, but I don't take the hardliner position that this de facto puts you in a state of mortal sin, because Schism is, according to Thomas Aquinas and Dante and the great thinkers, worse than heresy. I mean, it's worse than sodomy. It's worse. I mean, it's a big. So, you know, to come out guns blazing. Because it's a sin against charity. It is. It's a sin against charity, whereas heresy is a sin against faith. So I just think we need to take a deep breath and realize we do have a pontiff in Rome, or you would say an alleged pontiff, who is saying things that seem quite contrary to previous popes and to Catholic tradition. And I think everyone's trying to figure out how this works out because Vatican I never dealt, although these discussions were, were debated at Vatican I, there was no definitive doctrinal treatment on what if you have a pope in manifest heresy. Of course, Robert Bellarmine talks about that. But I don't, I don't know if we're going to talk about that today. But Yeah, so, I, maybe towards the end we could... Sure. Uh, I've got some quotes. Yeah. So, so are you, um, I don't know. How would you, how would you counter the idea that you are a, a schismatic, uh, or in a state of mortal sin or separation from God? Well, uh, let's, let's look at some doctors of the church or some saints and, and wise, uh, people. Uh, for example, uh, the Dominican Cajetan who debated Martin Luther, uh, he says that, uh, let me see if I can find his, uh, his quote on this, but um, he says that if you, if there are rumors in circulation that the Pope may not be a valid Pope, then you are able to uh, deny him the obedience that you ordinarily would, uh, provided that if there was no longer a doubt as to whether he was Pope or not, you were, you would be willing to give him your allegiance. So, okay. uh, you know, there was somebody, Cajetan, who, uh, you know, debated Martin Luther. So he understood who's in schism and who's not in schism. And he says uh, in his study of the popes that you're not in schism if you, uh, if you have doubts about the pope and then you act on, you know, on, on the fact that he's a doubtful pope. And, and I guess, you know, to play advocate here, what, is, what constitutes sure. rumors? Is it just, a, you know, a, a group of of trads at a conventicle or is it a, you know, a group of homeschool moms? I mean, what, what do we get here to, that has to be a substantial rumor that we got an invalid or heretical Pope? Well, let me, let me give you just the exact quote for him. He says, if someone for a reasonable motive 
holds the person of the Pope in suspicion and refuses his presence and even his jurisdiction, he does not commit the delict of schism, nor any other whatsoever, provided that he be ready to accept the Pope were he not held in suspicion. Uh, it goes without saying that one has the right yeah. to avoid. <laughs> uh, he says, you know, he says that be, the Pope could govern tyrannically, uh, and that is all the easier as he is the more powerful and does not fear any punishment from anyone on earth. So uh, uh, now in terms of what, what would be the criteria, uh, I would say that uh, when, you, when you have uh, Benedict, we'll get into the details on this, but Benedict uh, continued to wear white. He continued to give apostolic blessings, which only a pope can do. Uh, he continued to be called his holiness when only a pope can be called that. He continued to resign in the Vatican and he continued to call himself pope, although he called himself Pope Emeritus which has never existed before in 2000 years of church history. Uh, so what, what I've actually done is I have uh, two things, uh, and this is sort of my street cred. Uh, two months ago, uh, I was published in the Archivio Juridico, uh, which is uh, associated with the University of Bologna. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people on the internet try to say Maza and these Benny Vacantists, they're just crackpots and, no, no, this is solid scholarship. They accepted a, they, a peer-reviewed article and published it. Uh, so this is mainstream. This is, this is not crackpot stuff. And I can give you some quotes today from some Italians, uh, professors, who think along the same lines as what I'm going to be arguing. But, uh, and, and the people who put this journal together, some of them are actually working with Pope Francis on the, the new, maybe perhaps, rules that will come out governing papal resignations in the future. So I just want to, because uh, there, there are some folks out there who believe that Benedict was Pope and they, they are kind of kooky. And I don't ascribe to their uh, actions or antics or uh, to their mysterious Gnostic codes that they say are out there that we have to interpret. Yeah. Uh, you probably have heard of Andrea Cianci and his yes. Ratzinger code. Uh, that I don't ascribe to that at all. Uh, he argues that Benedict willfully impeded the See of Rome uh, and, and that uh, he's been giving us coded messages to alert us to that. And I, I, don't, I don't think there's any evidence for that. Yeah, I, I've noticed there seems to be, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, there seems to be three schools as of today on Benedict is was Pope. Um, the first, I think, would be your position, which we're talking about today. Uh, the second is the the Ratzinger Code, where uh, he was playing 4D, 5D chess all along. He was against Francis, and he had this deep plan. Um, and then there is, I guess, I, there's not really school, Brother Bugnolo in Italy, who held a conclave, was it last week? Yep, he held a conclave, and they to elect the next pope, and they elected Bergoglio as the next pope. So I guess they just sort of have gotten the problem solved by transferring. They met in a in a hotel, 
in the Michelangelo salon, I heard, which is kind of like the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, right? The Michelangelo salon <laughs> at a hotel. And they elected Bergoglio. And I think the idea for, from what I've heard is Brother Bugnolo believes that by validly electing Bergoglio in a hotel room, he's going to give him the keys and the charism of the Holy Spirit to start being a good pope. Is that, is that correct? I don't know if you followed it. To the extent that I followed it, I, I believe you're characterizing it uh, fairly. Yeah. So you're not holding to that? No. So are you a set of a contest now? Well, what, what does it leave? Where does it leave you after December 31st? Well, we have what normally happens when a pope dies. We have an interregnum. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes a few weeks. And in my study of church history, which, by the way, if I could mention this, uh, if folks go to edmundmaza.com, uh, starting on Ash Wednesday, we're going to have a, a Lenten Easter course. One of my courses is Pope History. And uh, I'm going to give examples of when there were interregnums that lasted extraordinarily long. Some of them lasted two years, uh, three years, but those were the exceptions. Those were not the rule. All right. All right. So we're in the interregnum. You're saying from December 31st till now, there is no pope. It seems that way. Okay. Now, I, again, I, I, I do, I, how should I put it? On the face of it, it, it does seem a little crazy to suggest that Benedict is not the Pope because in his Declaratio, which again, today is the 10th anniversary, he literally says, I renounce the ministry of the Bishop of Rome uh, in such a way that the, the See of Rome will be vacant uh, and a conclave will have to be held uh, for a successor. So, Dr. Mazza, what's your problem? He, he just said it there in black and white. Well, he did and he didn't. <laughs> and that's what I hope that we can get into. And, then, and that's the second thing I wanted to mention is that uh, in addition to my, my, my spring courses, also if people go to edmundmazza.com, my book is available. That I, there's a link you can click on and uh, people can get my book. I, I just published it. It's, uh, it's got over 200 pages. It's got over 200 footnotes where I go through this methodically, uh, and I hope to give the highlights with you today. All right, well, let's, let's get into it. So okay. 10 years ago, walk us through what happened. So uh, in order to demonstrate that Benedict was the Pope, uh, you have to prove two things. The first thing you have to prove is that he had a theology of the papacy which is contrary to sacred tradition. The and my detractors won't admit that. Uh, the second thing that you have to do is you have to demonstrate that that is a, an error uh, in his intellectual understanding of the object of his renunciation. Uh, because if he had an error in his intellect, his will was not free and therefore, according to natural law, as well as canon law, that would be an example of substantial error when your mind is in error about the object that you're choosing. And again, hopefully at some point in our conversation, I can, I can give some examples from the textbooks of what they mean by substantial error. So those are the two things. So let's start with the, with the first one. What was Ratzinger's theology of the papacy? And this is important because even if you think that I'm out in left field carrying a hockey stick, 
or you know a couple of french fries short of a happy meal uh it's still important to understand and get it right what's ratzinger's theology of the papacy because i argue in my book that the same theology behind that is the theology behind the synod on synodality and all this stuff about the synodal church which we need to fight against uh so um let me explain it to you this way. There was a, a modernist uh, primate of Belgium, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Sunins. And he wrote a letter to another modernist where he talks about before Vatican II, where they got the idea for certain things in Vatican II. And he says that, and I don't know how many of the viewers are familiar with this character from history, but his name was Dom Lambert Baudouin. He was a Belgian monk and he was friendly with the Anglicans and he had this ecumenical dialogue going on. And this is the 1920s when nobody was into this stuff uh, except some kooky Belgians. And even Ratzinger admits this in, Ratz in Ratzinger's writings that the idea of collegiality, which is the, the grandmother of synodality, that collegiality wasn't a Catholic thing. It was a Catholic and Protestant thing. So long story short, this guy, Baudouin, this priest, was friends with John the Twenty-Third before John the Twenty-Third became Pope, when he was a nuncio Roncalli. And according to Sunins, they had conversations in which Baudouin uh, tr tried to persuade Roncalli to, to have a council uh, and, and to uh, promote collegiality as a counterbalance to Vatican I. So Vatican I, the, the main emphasis was primacy, papal primacy. Vatican II, one of the main emphases was collegiality. Now, what is this about? Let me, uh, if you don't mind, I will read a, a direct quote from Ratzinger that explains uh, about power in the church uh, and, and why they, they sought to they, they use the words balance, but I would say use the word, they wanted to attack the authority of Peter. Uh, and this is how they went about it. And, and, and I'm quoting from the horse's mouth himself here. Um, so in the understanding of the church, let's say for the last few centuries, there are two forms of, of power in the church. There's the power that you get from the sacraments and there's the power that you get from having jurisdiction. And they've been understood as separate things. But, but this, is what, um, this is what Ratzinger writes. He says, if the proposed distinction, order versus jurisdiction, were undoubtedly right, the following argument would be logical. The power of order refers only to sacramental action and thus specifically to the Eucharistic event. This has nothing to do with collegiality. The priest's liturgical actio in the mass is rather something he alone must perform here and now. So if, if jurisdiction and, and, and uh, order are separate, then there is no collegiality because what the priest does in the mass is specific to him and to that here and now. And then the power of jurisdiction, uh, Ratzinger writes, refers, it is true, to the church, but only the pope has jurisdiction over the whole church. Every other bishop receives jurisdiction only for a delimited particular church, 
in which then, apart from the Pope, he alone is competent. Therefore, even the power of jurisdiction is not to be understood collegially. Uh, thus, and this would be the concluding consequence of the whole argument, collegiality is not conjoined with the essential functions of the Episcopal office. Now, let me put that in plain English for you, because this is the, this is the bedrock of all of this. You can't have the synod on synodality. You can't have these bishops' conferences, right, uh, that, that have stolen so much authority in the church and, and abused so much authority in the church with the traditional Catholic understanding of the distinction between order and jurisdiction. Because as Ratzinger just explained, uh, it, it's, it's a, it, I, I don't want to go through it again, but you, you get the idea, right? So what well, did let's pause to get here, around I, that? I'm not, I'm not sure that sure. everybody at home understands this distinction. Sure. It's important. So sure. can you give us an example? Let's just say uh, the bishop, Archbishop of New York, order and jurisdiction. Break it down for us. Okay, so when he is consecrated a bishop, uh, or rather when he was consecrated a priest, he was given the power to uh, take to absolve your sins, to transubstantiate the Eucharist, to celebrate the sacraments, and those powers can never be taken away from him. Right. That's an order. Now, that's, the power, those, that's the order. That's yeah. That's the order or sacrament. Right. These are ontological powers that that come from. From yeah, the so sacrament even if, that even if you the to, bishop yeah. were to be laicized, that that power of the holy orders in him remains. Precisely. Yes. Even if he goes so, to hell, still still there. Yeah. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? Yes. Now, uh, jurisdiction now, before the council was understood as uh authority to govern a specific area, like in your example, the Archbishop of New York, right? He has jurisdiction to, to govern that area. But the traditional understanding of that is that you get it from the Pope, okay? It's, it's called, um, it, it's, it's your missio canonica. It, it, it's, it's something that uh, you, you get which, in the jurisdictions from the Pope. Right. So you can be made a bishop. You can be made a bishop with yeah. the holy orders there and the powers, but until the pope says you are the bishop of this diocese, you don't have jurisdiction over the people living in that diocese. Precisely, yeah. and, and you're not a member. Pope. And you're not a member of the apostolic college or the college of bishops until the pope appoints you. Uh, and, and, and gives you that, that position and gives you that jurisdiction. Now, what changed everything, and this was their goal, one of their principal goals at Vatican II, you know, everybody thinks about, you know, uh, ecumenical dialogue with Muslims and, and, and Protestants and the changes to the mass. But the main thing that they wanted to get in, and, and I'll give you another, throw out another modernist Nouvelle theologian, Yves uh, Congyar, in October of 1963, when they voted on what I'm about to tell you about, he called it the October Revolution, a successful October Revolution, referring to the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. But this was October 1963. Uh, and, um, and he says, you know, for, for, for a thousand years, we've always seen things from the view of the papacy, but now we're going to push the bishops and we're going to balance the power. Now, how did they do it? 
Well, if you read Lumen Gentium, uh, chapters 22 and 23, what happened was this. They did a vote in October of 63. And the first thing that they voted on, which, seem, which seems innocuous, is should we consider Episcopal consecration the highest form of holy orders? Uh, because actually, if you read Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and other theologians, they don't see being a bishop as the highest form of holy orders. They see it as you're having jurisdiction from the Pope to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, now, of course, the bishop does confirmation, not the priest, and the bishop makes other bishops and not priests, but I don't want to get sidelined with that. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I'd like to so add something here that traditionally, sure. if you if you hang out with traditional Catholics, you'll hear them say, so and so was ordained a priest, so and so was ordained a deacon, so and so was ordained a subdeacon, but you won't hear right. a traditional Catholic say, so and so was ordained a bishop. The traditional way of saying it is he was consecrated a bishop. He was ordained a priest, a deacon, subdeacon, but he was consecrated a bishop. Why? Because in the Thomistic understanding, which I hold to, in holy orders, priesthood is the highest of the orders. Being a bishop unlocks the priesthood for you to have jurisdiction, which includes the consecration of other bishops, the ordination of priests, deacons, subdeacons, and so forth, and confirmation as the ordinary administrator of that sacrament. So if you're a traditional Catholic and you want to use the proper lingo, bishops are consecrated, priests, deacons, and subdeacons are ordained. Precisely. And it has to do with this distinction that you're discussing, discussing right now. Now, as you know, uh, Dr. Marshall, uh, in, in October 1962, uh, the, the, the progressive faction, uh, they, they deep-sixed the, the draft schemas that were all ready to go, scrapped them, and they said, we're gonna, we're gonna start fresh. And this is, what, this is what Ratzinger says about the original 1962 draft schema. He says, membership of the College of Bishops, the, the technical Latin phrase for that is communio hierarchica, could only be residential bishops. The requirement for membership was jurisdiction over a particular diocese, jurisdiction conferred by the Pope, and this is known as missio canonica. And he, he laments this. He says the college would appear in the long run to be nothing more than an institution of papal privilege and the great idea of collegiality threatened to evaporate. Yeah, because this, if you if you hold to this traditional understanding, you basically every single bishop, diocesan bishop on earth is there uh, at the Pope's wishes. All of his, and this makes sense. If if Peter has the keys, that means who is the bishop of such and such a city? Who is the bishop of Chicago, Lincoln, Nebraska, Hong Kong, whatever? They're the bishop there because ultimately the keys of Peter ratified and bound them to that geographic location. Correct? Correct. And even in the, in the first millennium, when the papacy did not so much exercise its uh, authority a lot or in a, in a, in a, in a, always in a sort of universal way, um, still tacit 
approval from the Pope was understood as what gave you jurisdiction. Uh, e even if they didn't run the names by the Pope, you know, whoever's going to be the Bishop of Smyrna, you know, in the year 529 or something, right? But as long as it was tacitly understood that that, that person was in communion with the Pope. Anyway, what happened at Vatican II was after the, the Council Fathers voted and approved that from now on, we're going to understand uh, Episcopal consecration as the highest form of holy orders, so that being a bishop is being ordained a bishop is now a sacrament, so to speak. Um, the next thing that followed from that, that they got everybody to vote on and approve of, or not everybody, but most of the majority of the fathers approved of this, was to say that through Episcopal consecration, the bishop receives three munira. Uh, he receives the office or the munis of teaching, sanctifying, and governing. Now, this was a big deal because now this is collegiality. In other words, you can govern without that jurisdiction. You have governing power even before the Pope gives you the Missio Canonica, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, so the idea here you is have, you're ordained as a bishop, that's the new language, and then in that download, if you want to use modern language for the bishop, for the priest becoming in the download package in the software is already governance. Whereas previously it was sent to you, you got licensed for the software, if you want to talk about that way, to govern as a bishop right. from Rome, from the Pope, you got the license. Now the Vatican II is saying in your package came governance. And I guess Precisely. implied here jurisdiction with it exactly exactly and so uh this is and let me give you a quick quote here from the uh, inaugural uh, issue of national catholic reporter which father z likes to call the national catholic distorter uh, uh for this is from the eve of the adoption of lumen gentium uh, other issues have taken the headlines at the moment but collegiality is still the key to the significance of the Second Vatican Council. The debate on birth control, the schema on ecumenism, the declaration on religious liberty, these and others are of deep and lasting importance. But the practical implementation of collegiality will have much to do with the effective communication of council decisions on these matters to the faithful and with their administration for decades and centuries to come. And that's why Kangyar called this the October Revolution. Hmm. And then lastly, because the, this is kind of, you know, 60 years ago, this is kind of ancient history. The last thing on ancient history I want to bring up is that um, they talked in Lumen Gentium about the bishops sharing supreme power with the Pope, always under the Pope, but with the Pope. And this, as, as Bishop Schneider has come out and said, nobody ever talked this way in church history ever before, that the bishops as a college of bishops, as a sovereign body, have supreme authority in the church on the same level with the Pope, although always under the Pope. Now, that was a completely new thing. And so what comes from this? Well, what isn't that always been these... the argument of the Eastern schismatics? Isn't that well, there? that's why they did this in the first place. Right. They wanted to be ecumenical, right? They mm -hmm. wanted to 
open up the church to our separated brethren. You see, it, it, it all goes back to these early Nouvelle theologians, modernists, Lambert, Bodouin, Yves Kangyar, and I'm sorry to say, at the council, Rahner, Ratzinger, uh, and, and, and others. Uh, and, but, uh, but, you know, chickens come home to roost, and there, there may be a, a silver lining in this. I now see, I've, I've never seen it articulated like the way you're saying it here, that if when you become ordained a bishop, your software package has governance in it. In other words, not something given to you from the Pope, but it's in your package, right, when you get it. That gives rise to the idea that you hear from Pope Francis all the time. Um, well, we need to consult these other bishops who have in themselves this governing power. So you have all these, you know, German bishops who have, you know, downloaded into their episcopate governing powers that are it's independent from the papacy. And so now I see how Francis is saying, well, we've got to consult all these episcopal bodies, all these bishops, because it seems, following this interpretation of Vatican II, right. that their authority is not per se coming from him as vicar of Christ. It's coming from their orders. And this was this is a novelty. This and is, Benedict this is not, believes this, doesn't he? Benedict XVI believes this. He said, uh, and I could quote him, he said that the biggest, in the last millennium, he, in fact, let me get the exact quote because I don't want to mess this up. Uh, this is what he says, Ratzinger, right? This is right after the council. The most crucial event in the development of the Latin West. Now, Dr. Marshall, if I had asked you before we started this, the show today, what do you think was the most crucial event in the development of the Latin West? You, you'd probably hmm. give me, you know, an, an answer, but not the not would, the answer I that Ratzinger was about. I would probably say the the imperial structure submitting to the church. That's probably what I would mm -hmm. say. What would you say? Well, this is what this, this is what Ratzinger says. He says, "I think the increasing distinction between sacrament and jurisdiction." between liturgy and administration. Mm. And he says, I think we should be honest enough to admit the distortion and corruption of the church and her theology, even to their inmost core, the separation of office as jurisdiction from office as right was continued for reasons of prestige and financial benefits. So, so, so Ratzinger, Ratzinger argue. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. So, well, uh, he said, so basically, and here's another, here's another quote from Ratzinger, both sacrament and ruling power interpenetrate one another. Yeah. So Ratzinger seeing that jurisdiction doesn't go from Jesus to the Pope and then delegated to the Bishop and from the Bishop delegated to the priest, like a waterfall. He's saying, right. he's seeing it as oh, the sacrament of holy orders is doing it directly to each Bishop. Correct. Yeah. That's a major change. Precisely. And this is the, this is the genesis of the Synod on Synodality.
This is where it comes from. But it's also the genesis of understanding Pope Benedict's Declaratio, where he says, I renounce the ministerium of the Bishop of Rome, but he doesn't renounce the munis, the Petrine munis. All right, now, but to play book, advocate here, yeah. Dr. Maza, if he sure. believes they're the same thing, doesn't he? No, he what, believes, what, what, so this is, he believes munis and ministerium is, is this, it's a substantial error, but he believes that, right? So let me, tr so what happened was this, if your mentality is that all power in the church is sacramental, you're with me that far, right? Yeah, I'm with you. That's what these Nouvelle theologians teach. Right. Even jurisdiction, even though, you know, they'll grant you that the Pope is the guy who makes you, you know, Bishop of Vienna or New York or Milan, right? They still think that your original, you know, foundation of jurisdiction came from the sacrament. And really all power in the church comes from the sacrament. Now, if you believe that, What's the next logical step if you say that the bishop got his power to govern from the sacrament? What's the ultimate progression to the ultimate evolution of this? That papal power is sacramental mm. and therefore you can never lose it. Right. That's now let wrong. me explain. Exactly. This is, and that's what, that's because what I'm going to argue. Just is that for example, committed. I can't remember which Pope it was. You probably know Dr. Maza. There was a Pope who was elected Pope when he was a deacon and he died before he yes. was ordained a priest. Who was that? I, I, I forget off I'd the top to of my head, up. but I know what you're I'd talking about. I'd have to about. look it up. Um, he was the Pope, even though he didn't have the, the ordination of priest or the consecration as bishop because papal power is juridical and not sacramental. And that's not how Ratzinger understands it. I know. And I can prove that. Yes. So that's what I'm about to, to demonstrate. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> Pope Benedict Emeritus did a interview with his old friend, the journalist Peter Seewalt. It was called, uh, in his own words, Last Testament. And again, I, I, I go into this in my book, and people can go to edmondmazza.com and, uh, and get that. But uh, what he, I'll give, read you the exact question that, uh, that Seewald put to him. Seewald says to, to Benedict, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter? So Seewald basically said to him, he basically threw his own declaratio back at him, right? Because, and, and that's another thing I include in one of the appendices of my book, is the text of Benedict's declaratio. He basically said, you know, my strength has been waning. Uh, I, I can no longer administer things. Um, so what would you expect Benedict to answer him? Yes, <laughs> but he doesn't. Uh, this, is, this is Benedict's uh, answer. Benedict says to him, of course, uh, one can make that accusation. What, what accusation? But it would be a functional misunderstanding. The follower of Peter is not merely bound to a function. The office enters into your very being. In this regard, fulfilling a function is not the only criterion, 
meaning not the only criterion for being a pope. That what are you talking wrong. about, Willis? Yeah, that seems, I mean, <laughs> yes, the papacy does not enter into your being. Because if the papacy entered into your being, that means that currently, right now, Pius X is still Pope. <laughs> and Pius IX, and Pius VIII, and Pius VII, all of them are currently reigning as pontiff. But they're not. Because when you die, you cease to be Pope. Right? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's how the church... So, yeah. so Benedict so is, is in fundamental... Uh, error here to believe that that's how the papacy attaches itself to a man. Precisely. And I can back this up with two more quotes and I'll be quick about it. But what we're getting at is this. If you're not merely bound to a function and the function that he's talking about is the ministry, the day-to-day -day practical ministry or governance of the church, he's saying that the successor of Peter is not merely bound to a function uh, that means that he can give up the function, but still be papal. And this is this is Which the point makes, that everybody this misses. Makes, this makes everything about Benedict start to make sense. Yeah, why Pre he still yeah, calls exactly. himself is, Pope? All those things. He thinks it entered now, into his being. Precisely. Now he tells Seawold uh, that would be a function when Seawold says to him is, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter. Benedict says one of one can, of course, make that accusation, but it would be a functional misunderstanding. Now, what does he mean by function? So I, I went back and I read I read so much Ratzinger that I feel like I'm suffering from Regensburg syndrome, <laughs> you know, like Stockholm syndrome. Yes. When you begin to, to sympathize <laughs> with the people that took you hostage. All right, let me read you this quote where Benedict criticizes Martin Luther for misunderstanding the difference between office as jurisdiction or function and office as right or sacrament. Quote, for Luther, the priest does not transcend his role as preacher. The consequent restriction to the word alone had as its logical outcome the pure functionality of the priesthood. It consisted in a particular activity. If that activity was missing, the ministry itself ceased to exist. There was purposefully no further mention of priesthood, but only of office. The assignment of the office was itself a secular act. So he's making a distinction there between office as function and office as sacrament. And he's saying the Lutherans rejected the idea of office as sacrament so that if the activity is missing, it doesn't exist anymore. The second example of what, what he means by a functional misunderstanding or function is Ratzinger talking about the crisis of the priesthood in the years following Vatican II. He says, quote, the crisis of the priesthood, which became obvious shortly after the council it resulted from a change in the meaning of life. The sacred was less understood while the functional was elevated to become the exclusively dominant category. Two conceptions of the priesthood were in confrontation, a social functional vision, which defined the nature of the priesthood as a service to the community in the fulfillment of a function. And on the other hand, the ontological sacramental vision which, while not denying the service character of the priesthood, 
saw it anchored in the existence of the ministry, an existence that was determined by a gift called a sacrament and granted to him by the Lord through the church. Um, he says, uh, so basically he says here that one avoided using the word priest or priestly on account of the sacral meaning and in its place used the neutral functional term minister. Yeah. Or as you hear uh, Protestants, preachers, they'll say the preacher because that's his function. Yes. So now what, so when in his declaratio, which is the legal document where Benedict resigns, he renounces that functional ministerium, but he does not renounce the sacramental munis. Which is not actually sacramental, though. Well, as he Prom understands it, <laughs> that's he, the yeah. point. He, in yeah. reality, in right. Catholic tradition, yes. the munis of the papacy is not sacramental. By the way, while you were speaking, Dr. Mazza, I looked it up. It's Pope Adrian V. He was elected pope as a deacon declared pope but he died before becoming a priest or a bishop and this proves that the papal office is not tied to the sacramental power of the episcopate it's tied to jurisdiction delegated by the the college of cardinals to the man who accepts the election very important distinction if 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 ratzinger benedict 16th is correct that would mean that Pope Adrian V was never actually Pope because he didn't have the orders to fulfill papacy. Doesn't that make sense? Right. I would makes love sense. to ask Ratzinger Benedict, how was Adrian V a Pope if he was never even a priest? Because it would destroy the way he understands the functionality and the ontology of these offices. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, so this is why, uh, you know, there have been people over the years, again, who say that people who think Benedict are still Pope are, are nuts or they're in schism or whatever. Uh, and they say, look, munis and ministerium means the same thing. Uh, there's a priest from the fraternity of St. Peter uh, who, who wrote a piece uh, for, for William Briggs where he says that you, you pick up a, a Lewis and Short Latin dictionary and munis and ministerium mean the same thing. But Which is what I not did for Ratzinger. When the controversy came out, that's exactly what I did. I got my Latin dictionary out, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure these are pretty close in Latin. I've seen them many times. And sure enough, ministerium can be translated as office, and munis can be translated as office. So I just said, yeah. eh, the Benny Plenis yeah, people too. are pushing <laughs> things too far. But the thing is, ministerium means the same as munis, except when it doesn't. And so what I've found is, and I'll, I'll try to be brief about this, but for example, Bishop Juan Ignacio Arieta, who is the secretary of the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, he probably knows a thing or two about these things. This is what he says with regard to problems that have arisen since the council with regard to, quote, the public function and the notion of office which are particularly reflected in the fluctuating use of notions such as munis, ministerium, and officium, both in doctrine and in the official text of the church. He says notions close to that of public function, such as munis, ministry, and office, terms which do not find univocal content in the documents of Vatican II. What does he mean when he says they don't find univocal 
content. That means that they don't mean the same thing all the time. And then I found a, a Polish professor at, uh, at the John Paul II Catholic University of Lublin in Poland. And this is what she says. She says, her name is Slawakowska. I hope I'm pronouncing the Polish correctly. She says, the knowledge of all the meanings of a given word, in this case, munis, is not enough to correctly identify the thoughts of the author of the translated text. The term munis is most often analyzed in literature with two others, officium and ministerium. They are also synonymous with it, but at the same time, each of them can mean something different. Their use, whether separate or synonymous, always depends on the context of the utterance, the author's intention, or the purposes for which they are used. So I think that refutes you know, the Ryan Grants of the world and the Father Ricketts of the world and the people who say, oh, Munis and ministry mean the same thing. You guys are, you guys are nuts. Well, let me, let me play advocate here because sure. this is how I would angle at it. I would say, okay, well, we, what she says is you can't determine the author's intent by it, by just that Declaratio text. Okay, well, let's take a page from Dr. Mazza's book. Let's spend a year studying the writings of Ratzinger, and then we will find out what he intends by those words. And it turns out what Benedict Ratzinger intends is, is every time he's referring to the uh, juridical papacy, he's also referring to a sacramental papacy. So whenever he's talking about ministry, he's also talking about munis. Ergo, when he writes ministerium, his intention is to intend the munis since he sees them as the same thing. Ergo, but he, doesn't. he renounced. But he doesn't. He, he said, the successor of St. Peter is not merely bound to a function. Uh, so in other words, the function is the ministry, the active day-to-day -day work yes. of the Bishop of Rome. So yeah, several times Benedict came out and acknowledged Pope Francis as Pope because he is the active Bishop of the diocese, whereas, and this is a, a post-Vatican II Nouvelle theologian type term, the Bishop Emeritus or the Pope Emeritus for the Diocese of Rome is uh, is Benedict, right? So yeah, Benedict would, would argue that, uh, you know, it, yeah, of course, Pope Francis is the Pope uh, because he's the active, he's the guy fulfilling the function right now, but yeah. he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Now, I've found a document from Ratzinger where he himself gives different meanings to munis and ministerium. I can run it by you real quick okay. here. So, he, so in you're saying that in Ratzinger's own language, yeah. he does make the distinction. It's not always univocal, the same thing. Exactly. Okay. Now, well, in, right. in the passages I read you, when he criticized Luther, when, when he talked about the, the crisis in the priesthood, he, he, he did uh, discriminate between the, the jurisdictional functional aspect and the ontological um, uh, Munis aspect, but I'm going to make it even clearer. So in 1947, Pope Pius XII uh, reformed the rite of ordination. So back in the early 80s, this is Cardinal Ratzinger uh, talking about that. And this is what he says. He says, Pius XII defined as the central words, those spoken at the consecration by the bishop, quote, send forth upon him, O Lord, we beseech thee, the Holy Spirit, by whom may he, the ordained, be strengthened to perform faithfully the work of thy service, 
with the help of thy sevenfold gift. And in Latin, uh, the, I'll, read, uh, I'll read the Latin. Emite in eum quasimus domine spiritum sanctum quo in opus ministerii tui fideliter exequendi septiformis gratiae tui munire yeah. mm-hmm. roberator. Yeah. And then he says, and this is the last line of his quote, accordingly, the key word now is ministerium or munis, service and gift. Right. Because munis so does can mean make gift or, or office in Latin. Exactly. So he's making a distinction between the functional use of the gift, the service, the ministerium, versus the munis gift that was given to you ontologically, which, which he believes that you, you, you get, but you, you, you can't lose it because you've got it. Um, now, if I could add real quick here, uh, just that people don't think that I just came up with this myself. There is a professor, he's a law faculty of the University of Roma Tre. His name is Carlo Fantipier. And he wrote this in 2015. And he says that uh, talking about uh, the resignation of Benedict, he says, applied to the Petra, uh, I'll start from the beginning. Um, He says, a theological conception which considering the articulation between person and office to be superseded insists on the sacramental foundation of the ministry and on the indelible bond of the sacrament with the mission applied to the petrine ministry this doctrine postulates a distinction between munis and ministry and makes the primacy a sort of personal charism giving rise to inconsistencies or misunderstandings such as the existence of two popes, even if one reigning and one emeritus. And he says, against the prevailing juridical consideration of the canonists who place the power of jurisdiction at the center of the papal figure as the origin of all the others in the church, the conciliar theologians have countered with the primariness of the sacramental dimension of the episcopate from which they derive the other specific functions of the bishop of rome so what what fantipier is is basically making the same distinction here that i'm arguing that benedict ratzinger understood uh, that he was giving up the, the functional aspect the bishop the ministry of the bishop of rome but not the ontological aspect that's sacramental right. and in fact uh, I have a quote from Pope Francis. Listen to this quote from Pope Francis. This, for me, cinches it. Uh, Pope Francis, quote, For some theologians, the papacy is a sacrament. The Germans are very creative in all these things. Uh, I do not think so, but I want to say that it's something special, unquote. (laughs) Francis says that? Yes. So he acknowledges that these Nouvelle theologian, especially the, these Germans out there, the Ronners, the Ratzingers, the... So yeah, this is I, why I argue that, yeah, you, you see where I'm well, coming yeah, from. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard a priest after the death of Pope Benedict, he said, yeah, we, we used to have two popes, now we're back to having one pope. And I'm just thinking, how does anyone who's classically trained say such a thing? 
And it's because they don't understand the papacy. Yeah, they don't understand the papacy as a juridical office instituted by Jesus so, Christ. Precisely. Now, at, at the beginning of the show, I, I, I said that there, if you want to prove that Benedict was still the Pope and that his resignation was invalid, you got to prove two things. One, you've got to demonstrate that he does not have a traditional theological understanding of the papacy. Which is clear. I, th I, th I think, thank you. I'm in 100% agreement got, with you on that point. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. The second thing you've got to do is demonstrate that that represents what, what, what Canon 188 of Canon Law says, that that is a substantial error and that every resignation is invalid by the law itself in the case of substantial error. So, uh, you know, recently, Robert Sisko, uh, who's got a website with Salza about the papacy, and, and they've argued against the Bene Vicantists. That's you know their term for people right. like myself. Uh, recently, he was on Matt Fred. Uh, uh, no, actually, it was Salza that was on Matt Fred recently. But Sisko on the website says the following. He says, what makes a man pope is possessing the jurisdiction of the papal office. Uh, jurisdiction is, is is what gives the Pope the authority to actively exercise the ministerium, teaching, governing, and sanctifying. And jurisdiction is the form of the papal office. Well, let's let's say that that's true. Well, that means that Benedict didn't understand it that way, and so he he committed substantial error. Now, what would be a good example to try to demonstrate to you the concept of uh, of substantial error? So let me. I, the, the example I like to use with people is the, the elephant in the room. Imagine that my grandmother, my old eccentric uh, grandmother died and she left me her estate. So I've got all this stuff. And one of the things that she left me is this big gold gleaming gaudy elephant, <laughs> which is heavy and I don't like it. So I have a, a yard sale, a garage sale, and I sell it because I don't like it. And, and I think it's gold plated. And so I, I don't sell it too cheaply, but I don't sell it for a fortune either, right? But what if, you know, my big giant gold gouty elephant was solid gold? Well, I committed substantial error because in my intellect, I thought I was giving up something that's only gold plated. And this is what the, the canonists would argue. It's a substantial error because you misunderstood the substance of the thing that you were trying to to get rid of, you see, and I've lost, I've lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, by misunderstanding it. So that's my argument that if you, if you read different canon lawyers, they have a definition of substantial error, which seems to be applicable in this case of Ratzinger. But it wouldn't make the sale invalid. Dr. Mazza couldn't say, Hey, give me that back. I didn't know that. Well, that would depend on the judge, but what the, what the canonists say, and let me give you an exact quote. All right, so this is from uh, William Cahill of St. John's University. Quote, error invalidates the act if it is an error concerning the substance of the act. Error affects consent. For the will in an act of consent elects an object presented to it by the mind. If the mind is in error, the object is imperfectly or incorrectly presented, and the choice made upon such a premise is not always the same choice that would have been made if the object were correctly known. Um, I didn't have informed cons I didn't have informed consent. 
Right. Yeah. You, I, I understand you made a substantial error, but here's the real problem, Dr. Mazas. If he does not understand the object, which is the papacy, how did he ever get it in the first place? He couldn't even consent to receive it on day one. Now we're into a bigger no, problem. I, yeah. Yes. And Roberto Di Mattei, who we all know and love, yep. <laughs> the Italian traditional uh, author, he brought this up, and I have a very simple answer. Okay. It's only an impediment when you try and separate, not when you're accepting the papacy. Why? So basically, when, on, well, I'll explain why. Okay. On, 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 in, was it April 18th, 2005, when Benedict accepted the papacy, he accepted it without reservation, as far as we know. I mean, according to public statements. Sure. So what, whatever the papacy was, he embraced. So there's, there is no impediment. But when he tried to give it up, he's like, well, I'm giving it up, but it's still in my being. Francis is the pope, but I'm still a successor of St. Peter. You, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. That is the problem. So there you're is saying no that problem. in the reception of the papacy, even though he had a faulty understanding it, he received all of it. Ergo, it's fine. But in the it was unqualified. In yeah. the removal of papacy, he his faulty understanding therefore creates a substantial error in that case. Precisely. Even though it's still implicit, though. In the, and, I'll, and I'll add another his thing. His error is implicit Ooh, in both. It's implicit in the reception and it's implicit in the removal of the function of it. Yeah, this is very complicated. How are we lay people ever supposed to understand all of this, Dr. Mazza? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we, uh, we do the best we can, right? Yeah. I mean, we study these yeah. things and we uh, clearly... Well, you know, you know, you said lay people. I started doing this research because two priests, uh, one priest, one bishop came out and said that we need to study this. Mm. Monsignor Nicola Books, uh, who, who's actually a friend of Ratzinger back at the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. In 2018, he did an interview with Aldo Maria Valli. Mm. In which, you know, they were talking about Francis and all the chaos in the church. And, they, and he said, well, I think we instead of looking at you know, the, the issue of a heretical pope, we ought to study Ratzinger's resignation and see, was it qualified? Was it halfway? Uh, because, uh, yeah, th that, so th that got me thinking. And then secondly, Father Nicholas Gruner, you know, I consider him my starets, my, my okay. spiritual advisor since I was 17 years old. And um, in October of 2014, he gave a talk in uh, Dearborn, Illinois, in which he said, look, canon law says, canon uh, 332, if the Pope decides to resign his munis, uh, he can do that. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. Uh, he just has to manifest it and he has to do it freely. And yet Benedict, if you read his declaratio, he doesn't renounce the munis. And that's the one thing you have to do. Uh, and, and Father Gruner shocked a few people when he said this. Right. Uh, so I'm, as a layperson, I'm just following what very good priests uh, have have told me to look into. And even Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, a couple of years ago, he said, before we can have another conclave, 
we have to investigate Benedict's resignation as well as the election because of the St. Gallen Mafia uh, of, of, of Francis. Right. So I'm just following what the good archbishop said we should do. Yeah. Um, well, excellent. Uh, thank you for your time. And I think regardless of you. how this swings, whether you think there is a pope or there is no pope right now, I think your research on Ratzinger Benedict and then on the Second Vatican Council and what is a bishop and how it relates to jurisdiction, function, and power are all things that must be studied. Thank you, especially in light of this synod on synodality. It, and uh, I, I, if we... I honestly, the way you've articulated this, the way the, the subtle change at Vatican II does lead to this idea, well, then the Pope should be consulting all these bishops. Yeah. That's what yeah. he should be doing. I mean, that it follows from this teaching. Well, the Pope needs to be doing all these consultations and co and sort of doing this co-reign. And uh, that's yeah, and, I think going to uh, get us into a lot of trouble as as it is already and as yeah, time goes on. You know, uh, at Vatican I, uh, Bishop Gasser, uh, in, in, in trying to understand what, what, what Vatican I was talking about, uh, he said, quote, uh, the bishops succeed, succeeded the apostles not as succeeding to a universal apostolate, but rather to an episcopate as rulers of individual churches. Bishop Gasser is the one who, who wrote the official relatio for Vatican I. That's a dogmatic council, unlike Vatican II, which is a pastoral council. Mm -hmm. So this synod on synodality is going against Vatican I. Yeah. Um, it seems obvious. And, 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 and people just generally, when they hear about synod on synodality, there is a general recoil against it. How is this Catholic? Right. How is this ever Catholic? It, it's the sense of the faithful, right? The, mm -hmm. the, our Lord said the sheep are not going to follow uh, the hireling. They, they know my voice. The sheep hear yeah. my voice. They, they know the, sh the, the, sh uh, the voice of the good shepherd. Oh, by the way, real quick, I have to say this, otherwise I'm going to kick myself. Uh, the people who are against, you know, who call me a Benny Vacantist, they say, well, there's something called universal peaceful acceptance, and that just shoots your whole theory down. So let me just address that real quick. They say that uh, it's a dogmatic fact that Francis is the Pope because no cardinal has publicly come out and rejected him. Uh, and only a handful of bishops have. And that's something called universal peaceful acceptance. And that's that's not something revealed by God, but it is something which is so close to theology that it must be true, and therefore it's infallibly true. Uh, I want to answer that real quick if I can. Uh, <laughs> real quick, in 1989, Pope John Paul II came out with an official profession of faith that he wanted everybody to follow. It's got the Nicene Creed, but it also talks about dogmatic facts and things that are theologically certain. 1998, Cardinal Ratzinger, as head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, gives a commentary on that. And he talks about how important it is that the Catholic faithful and clergy give their assent even to things that are dogmatic facts and not directly from revelation. And he gives some examples. He says the canonization of saints and the elections of popes. So people like Salza and Cisco, they say, slam dunk, Maza and Barnhart and all these people, they're nuts. Uh, I, and my answer is this. 
uh, Giuseppe Sciacca, who's the head of the Apostolic Signatura, the, su the Supreme Tribunal of the Church. I think he has the job that Cardinal Burke used to have. In an interview with Vatican Insider, not talking about papal elections, but talking about canonizations, said that when Ratzinger said that, it wasn't the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith defining that canonizations are infallible or that the elections of popes you know, the universal peaceful acceptance of an election of a pope is infallible. He was just being illustrative. In other words, this is what theologians put in that category. And so Shiaka says that as lay people, we can hold that canonizations are not, in, are, are not infallible and we're not in schism as a result of that. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interview he did with Vatican Insider. So that's my quick answer to the people who try to say you should shut up because universal peaceful acceptance is your argument. You know, it doesn't okay. kill my argument. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's, um, I'm going to put your, your latest book on the screen here. The title of it is Thank you, Doc. third secret of Fatima in the synodal church. Volume one, Pope Benedict's resignation by Dr. Edmund J. Maza. And, uh, where's yeah, the folks best go to Edmund Maza. Yeah, if they go to edmondmaza.com, uh, there's a link there uh, to order it, as well as to sign up for my spring courses on uh, Pope history. And also, uh, I'm doing a special course, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, it's, it's partially based on uh, Pope Benedict's uh, trilogy uh, for Lent. We're going to be okay. looking at that. But uh, the uh, the ebook will eventually be available on Amazon. Uh, but at the moment, the ebook and the physical book are on Lulu. Com. But if they go to edmondmaza.com, there's just a, a link they can click on. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, we should pray a Hail Mary at the end because we got some, we need some clarity and Our Lady is the seat of wisdom. Amen. So, so Amen. let's pray that together. In nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Sancta Mater Dei, Mater ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, Dr. Maza, thank you for joining us. Everybody, thanks for watching. Make sure you pray your rosary every day. And until next time, remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Godspeed. Dr. Maza, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Marshall.